we began a series a few weeks ago that really is kind of the hub of what we're trying to communicate and something we want us all to be aware of, and that's for something more, that God has created us for something more. And I, and I want to keep going back to it. I, I know I keep repeating it, but I think it's something we often forget, and it's this, that you were created for something more. If you find yourself living a humdrum, just existing, kind of surviving life, listen to me, you've missed it. That's not what God has for you. In fact, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, the something more is he wants to give you eternal life through relationship through his son. We just sang about it and said, what a beautiful name he is, is the name of Jesus. Well, that's the relationship Christ wants to, that God wants to give you with his son. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there's more than just eternal life. He says he wants us to live the abundant life. And we talked about that week one, and then we started talking about what are some things that we struggle with in our lives that really keep us from living the abundant life that Christ has for us. And we talked about religion and, and focus on religious duty versus developing our relationship with him. That's a huge one. And last week we talked about one that is so personal. We talked about regret, right? We all have regret. And we learned a lot of biblical truth last week about regret. In fact, if you weren't here, I challenge you to go back to the iTunes, our website, and click on that and listen to it. Because I'm telling you, if there's one thing as a pastor that I talk to people all the time that struggle with, it's regret. I can't, I can't because this happened, that happened. God can't forgive me because, and we just wrestle with regret. And listen to me, if you struggle with regret, you will never enjoy the abundant life that Christ has for you. And then there's one more area today that I want us to tackle, and that's this that I think really keeps us from living the abundant life, and that's choosing to live a life of mediocrity. Choosing to live a life of mediocrity. Now, when my, as my boys have gotten older, I've learned something, but I continue to learn it because you, have you noticed as a parent you never get it figured out? Amen? Amen. And if you're a parent not saying that, you've got a root awakening coming, right? I mean, because it's coming your way. And I figure some things I haven't learned out, but one thing as a parent I know with three, with three boys is that I have some really high expectations for them. I'm going to talk about behavioral expectations. That's natural. But I'm talking about stuff like career, you know. I want them to find a career that they love to do. I want them, like I do, to get up every morning and go, I can't wait to do my job today. I can't wait to go and do what I'm doing. And some of you are like, oh, my gosh, I wish my parents had that for me because I hate what I do. Well, that's not what God wants for us. And as a parent, I have this expectation for my kids. I want them to choose a path and a career that, A, they can enjoy and love doing every day, but, B, most importantly, a place where they can be a platform to share the goodness and the grace of God. I want that for my kids. And then let's even talk about marriage. I mean, you know, think about that. I mean, as a parent, don't you want your kids to marry someone who's desperately in love with Jesus? Don't you want some of you like, I'm not so sure about that. You do. You want that, right? You want them to love Jesus, and you pray that. And then, and then as a parent, because you have these high expectations, here's what we do. We tell our kids stuff like this. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't settle, right? Don't settle. And here's what we're saying, and you've said it maybe in different ways. Maybe you didn't use those exact words, but with our kids, when it comes to marriage or it comes to career or it comes to anything in their life, we have this element in us that goes, just whatever you do, just don't settle. Here's why. Because in settling, here's what we're saying, that if you settle and you think it's okay to settle, then you're accepting mediocrity as it's okay. So when we settle in life, we're basically sending this message that mediocrity is acceptable. Now, when I read scripture, I don't see that. Do you? 
See, here's the thing I think many of us, if we were like gut level honest today, which I hope you are, and you really put that spiritual mirror in front of you, and you really begin to evaluate your life, here's what most of us will probably discover. There's probably some areas of our lives where we've settled. Maybe one of those is marriage. Now, hear me. I'm not talking about your spouse right now, so don't nudge them right now and go, yeah, I've really said, and most of the men are probably thinking that, because that's not what I'm saying today. I'm not saying you settled for a spouse. I'm saying you settled in your marriage, and here's what I mean. Maybe when you got married, like I, when I got married, and, and we said I do, and there, it was all that warm, fuzzy moments, and everybody cried, and it was awesome, and we got this journey of marriage thing started, and there was something in us goes, I have this high expectation of having a godly marriage, a marriage that looks like this, and this, and this and this, right? Many of you had that, right? And what you found out over maybe a decade, two decades, two and a half decades like us, or three and four decades, what you found out is that somewhere your expectations and you just settled. And when you look at your marriage, you're like, oh, this is not what I wanted it to be, right? Maybe some of you that are dating, some of you in the back row, there are some of our teenagers, and some of you that are in the dating process. I mean, you have this high expectation of, I want to be in a relationship with somebody who loves Jesus. I want to be in a relationship, as Colossians says, someone that can build my joy for Christ, not take it away from me. And so I want to be in that kind of relationship. And you have these high standards of what that looked like. And then you went to school, and you, or you went to college, and you found out there's just not a lot of people that fit that qualification. And what do we do? We settle. And we think then we can change them. Uh-uh, that happened, right? Or maybe the worst thing is this. Maybe we find ourselves settling in the worst place possible. And that's our journey with Christ. Our walk with him. I don't know about you, but if, if, if your testimony is this this morning, that the moment you said yes to Christ, you experienced so much excitement and joy, and you wish you had that same joy and excitement today that you had back then, that's because you've settled. It's like marriage. I used to get mad at people, and I still do, so don't ever say this to me. I used to get mad at people and say this. You know, when you get married, it's all excitement, it's enthusiasm, but it changes over time. Why? What does it change? Because you tell me it's supposed to change? Why am I not supposed to win my wife's heart like I once did when we were dating trying to catch her, right? I mean, why would I not do that anymore? The reason things change in marriage is because somewhere we bind this idea, I've caught them, they're good, they're locked in, and so I can just settle. How many wives want a settling husband? None of you, right? And some of us have done that in our journey of faith. We look back at our, you know, when I was 17 years old, man, I was so on fire for Jesus. I was loving. I was sharing the good news. I was reading my Bible. I just wish I had that. Well, why do you wish that? Because you settled somewhere along the line. Somewhere you've decided that the status quo was victory for you. Right? And I'm just telling you, you have these high expectations of what your journey with Christ is going to be. And now you look at it and go, what? So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to challenge you hard today, all right? Today we're just going to get down in it. And I want to challenge you with some stuff. And I want to challenge you about your heart because I don't know your heart, but God does. And you do. And I want to challenge you. And I want to ask some questions as it relates to mediocrity. And here's the first question as we're going to look at our passage. The first question I want you to think about is this. How do we get there? Now, before I get into the scripture, because I'm only going to read two verses today. And I want to kind of dissect them out. But 
when you think about a life of mediocrity, one of the first questions when you look at your marriage, maybe you look at your finances, you look at your relationships, but today we're going to look at a relationship with Christ. How did I get to the place where I just settled for mediocre in my journey with Christ? Where I just settled and not reading my Bible as much as I should or praying and that somehow I just settled. I mean, we were at the campus of UCF this week and uh, Don introduced me to a guy. What was his name, Don? Ahmad, and he was talking, he was a Muslim, obviously, and he was talking about what he does, and you know, when he started, of course, I knew what I was going to preach about today, and so when he starts talking about how many times they pray a day, which is five, right, and he tells us exactly the times they pray, I'm thinking, this dude, why, he has missed it, I mean, he's missed this Jesus of Nazareth that can change his life, and he's bought into what we would all call something that's a lie, that is not from God, that's no, not a path to salvation, he's missed it, but the one thing I will say about him is he's dedicated to what he believes, this guy is not settling with his process of loving his small g God. And yet we have the right answer, and we do. We know the God of eternity. We know the creator of the universe. We know the one that the psalmist says, who am I that you're even mindful of me? And we know him, and yet we settle for less than what he has for us. So how do we get there? Well, let me tell you this before we get into Scripture. Here's how you got there. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't by accident. I'm going to say something that's probably going to offend most of us in the room, okay, because it's, it's tough. Here it is. Listen, ready? You were spiritually at the place you're at right now, today. The place you're at spiritually is a direct result of the path that you've been on. wasn't by accident. If you find yourself passionately in love with God today, it's because you set a path for that. If you find yourself distraught and confused and not close in your walk with Christ, it's because you put yourself on a path for that. I used to joke all the time when I, we lived in Missouri, because we love Disney World. We, we've been to Disney World a few times. And so I would joke, because in Missouri, it was kind of interesting that, hey, if you want to go to Disney World, and we would take this interstate and shoot north, will we ever get there? Well, no. And I would say stuff like, you know, you could pray for traveling mercies. You could put your Mickey ears on. You could do whatever you want to do. But at the end of the day, if you don't set a direction for your, your life and your journey to get to Disney, you're never going to make it. So how did you get where you're at today? Because that's the course you're on. Well, Doug, you don't understand this. I, I get it. I know trials happen. I know difficult times happen. I know life just happens sometimes. But even through those moments, we still set a direction for that. So wherever you find yourself today, that's how you got there. Now, listen, here, let me give you another reason you got there. Look what it says in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. God is speaking to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. And he says this, because these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. How did they get to a place where they bought into mediocrity? I want you to write this down. It's in your worship folder. Because our words and our hearts get out of sync. One of the reasons we find ourselves mediocre in our faith is because what we say with our mouth and the actions of our lives are not doing this, but they're doing this, right? Now, I want you to notice what... what Isaiah says there, what God says to Isaiah. He first of all says this, they draw near to me with their mouth. Now, this is an expression in the Hebrew that's talking about worship. He says, they draw near to me with their mouth. In other words, when they're in corporate worship, they declare the right things about me. When they come to the temple and they sing the Jewish 
songs, which I won't dare to sing. I mean, they're declaring the right things about me. They're singing the true doctrine about who I am. I mean, they are getting it right. They draw near to me with their mouth. This is not a dig at them. This is a compliment to them that Israel, man, they're doing the right stuff. They're saying the right stuff. They are drawing near to me. When they worship, man, they are singing it, and it's all right. They're drawing near to me with their mouth. Then he says, and they honor me with their lips. Well, to draw near to him with our mouths as a reflection of their worship. But then he says they honor me with their lips, which he's talking about moments outside of worship. So when they're out and about, they're saying right stuff about me. They're having God conversations. They're telling people, you can trust God. I know you're going through this. God is the one you need to be leaning on. I mean, they, listen, they, whether they're in worship are out of worship, they are saying things declaring truth about God, and they're saying things and they're talking rightly about God. These people are literally saying all the right stuff. Do you see that? Do you see that? And then notice what he says next here. Yet, their hearts are what? Far from me. Think about that. They're saying the right stuff. They're singing the right stuff. They're declaring the right stuff. They're talking the right stuff. But yet their hearts are out of sync. In other words, there is no connection between their words and their actions. Now, come on. Everybody look at me. Do you understand what I'm saying right there? There is no connection between what they say and how they live their life. Instead of it being my words and my actions like this, in sync and in rhythm, it looks more like this. Let me give an example of that. When Sonia and I, our first year of marriage, we've been married 24 years now, 24 and a half years. And so in our first year, maybe first two years of marriage, I was really, really good at something. And that was apologizing, right, honey? I was really good at saying, I'm sorry. I mean, now, if you've done something wrong, is that the right thing to say? Okay, I, that's not a trick question. Is that the right thing to say? Yes, it is the right thing to say. And I'll never forget this, and I haven't heard this in at least six or seven hours. So anyway, I remember when I would apologize, and I would say, honey, I, you're right, I'm sorry. At a certain point, that didn't work anymore. And I noticed she began to say this, I don't want you to apologize. I want your behavior to change. Now, what was she saying? What you say and how you're living aren't doing this. They're doing that. And the point of what God is telling Israel is this, is that you're giving me lip service, but there's no actions backing this thing up. And he says, your hearts are far from, listen, your hearts are far from me. That word far in the Hebrew means a long distance away. You remember the passage says that he throws our sins as far as the east is to the west. The imagination of east and west never connected how far that is. He says, you're saying the right stuff. You're honoring me. You're close to me with what you say, but your hearts are in left field. They're not even close. Now, what's he saying? The desires of our heart aren't wrapped up in really loving God. The desires of our heart, if we're settling for mediocrity in our walk with him, the desires of our heart is not wrapped up in our love for God. It's not wrapped up in our faith in God. And it's not wrapped up in us wanting desperate communion with God. Our hearts are wrapped up in, guess what? The world. To be far from him. Now listen to me. Can you relate to that? As you look at your life, and I know you're like, Doc, don't, this, this is not encouraging. I know. 
I had to think about it for the last three weeks. I know. But it forces us to take the spiritual mirror and go, okay, if I want the abundant life, if I truly want to live what God has for me, and I want to knock it out of the park, and I want to experience the more God has for me, I have to look at my life and go, okay, have I settled for life of mediocrity? Because it's real easy to go like this. Okay, but Doug, I'm here today. Yes, you are. That's awesome that you're here today. It's awesome that you chose to be here. But is your heart here this morning? You know, we sang some songs a while ago that should just like totally get you jacked up. When we're singing that there is no rival and there is no equal, we are declaring that the God of the universe has no one that can hold a candle to him. That should be something that excites us. Or we sing about the faithfulness of God and how, you know, he's done miracles once and he'll do them again and I believe I'll see it. I mean, that should excite us that the God of eternity thinks about us, cares about us, and intervenes in our lives. So while he had your words a while ago, did he have your heart too? Is he the center of the attention and the affection of our hearts this morning? See, some of us fall prey to this. We think if we say the right stuff long enough that eventually it'll move from our mouth to our heart and it doesn't work that way. Jesus said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Which means we're figured out a way to give God good lip service, but our actions don't match it. Do you see how easy it is to get to a place of mediocrity? And maybe many of us find ourselves there. So I want to ask the second question, and it's this. How does that impact us? If I've really gotten to a place where I have settled for mediocrity, how does that impact my life? Because here's the one thing I think is interesting about most of us. We would typically say this, that yeah, I may be doing some things or thinking some things or not doing some things I should be doing, but it doesn't really impact my life. And here's what I want to say to you. You're wrong. It does. What you say, what you think, what you see, what you watch, what you listen to, the environment you find yourself in, all of that has a dire impact on your walk with Christ. All of it. Now, let me give you two areas that are totally impacted by living a life of mediocrity. First one is this, is your convictions. Now, he says, your hearts are far from me. Now, let me ask you this. Where does faith happen? In your heart. Paul says this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe it in your hearts that God is raising from the dead, you shall be saved. Where does faith happen? In our hearts. Where does conviction happen? In our hearts. And one of the places and one of the areas that living a life of mediocrity truly gets impacted is in our convictions. Because our convictions have everything to do with the condition of our heart. Listen, if our hearts are far from him, we will find out this, that our hearts will begin to treasure the wrong things. Right? Our hearts will begin to treasure the wrong things. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And some of us look at our lives and go, okay, am I treasuring the wrong things? And I don't want to jump too much into this, but we got to, let's just be real honest. I mean, we're committed to a lot of things, but we're loyal to almost nothing, right? We're committed to that extracurricular, this extracurricular, that, and it all takes precedence. And if we're not careful, the convictions of our heart begins to shift and our hearts begin to treasure the wrong things like money, popularity, the extracurricular, instead of treasuring the one who saved me, and that's Jesus. We also find that our hearts not only begin to treasure the wrong things, but our hearts begin to develop gray areas. Listen, there are things when you read the scripture that are close-handed issues. I mean non-negotiables. For example, Jesus said, John 14, 6, I'm the way, 
I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, let me give you a really good Greek, Greek example. No one. You know what no one means in the Greek? Great. No one. That's what it means. Nobody's getting to God except through Christ. So if you have somebody, you know somebody, you kind of buy into this idea that, you know, as long as people are religious people and they kind of are good people, which the Bible says no one's good, no, not one. But anyway, as long as they kind of walk this path, that somehow we all kind of end in the same place. Listen, that's a close-handed issue, and you're dead dog wrong. Because Jesus says, I'm the only way. And some of us, what happens is when our hearts get out of sync and out of rhythm with God and where hearts are far from him, yes, we begin to treasure the wrong things, but we begin to develop gray areas. And what used to be kind of God spoke against it, we kind of start beginning to justify it. You know what I'm talking about, right? I could talk through a lot of social issues on this one, but I won't. But I need you to think about it. Can I tell you something else about the heart? The heart not only begins to develop gray issues, the heart begins to tolerate sin. Because we always do this. Well, I'm not as bad as Kevin. Kevin can go, well, I'm not as bad as Doug. Well, I'm not as bad as Trap. Well, I mean, we start this comparing mode. Well, everybody knows I'm not as bad as Doug. I mean, and so uh, somehow, well, I sin and I rebel. You know, it's not as bad as so-and-so. Why? Because my heart is far from him. Now, listen, here's the worst thing. It affects our convictions because it affects our heart because eventually a heart that is far from God, yeah, it'll treasure the wrong stuff. Yeah, it will develop gray areas. But listen to me, a heart that is far from God eventually will stand for absolutely nothing. And we will look just like the world. Can I tell you that is the greatest indictment on the church, not just this church, the church, is that we look too much like the world and not enough like Jesus. In fact, one of my favorite speakers, Randy and I are talking about this, one of my favorite communicators, his name is Francis Chan. He used to be a pastor. I think he's a pastor again. But I went to a conference, and it was one of these conferences where like 7,000 church leaders were there. It's called Catalyst. And I was there, and they had this booklet, and it was, and it was telling us, you know, the titles of what everybody's going to preach on. And his title read like this, if I had a church next door to Jesus, my church would be bigger. I'm like, What? It's like heresy, right? I'm like, who says that kind of stuff? And so I didn't know if I even wanted to stay for the conference or I wanted to leave. And so I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, well, I got to listen to this dude because this dude must be crazy. Now, I listened to him for 45 minutes, and ultimately, here's what he said. The reason my church would be bigger is because the commitment I call people to than compared to the commitment that Jesus called people to. Why? Because of our hearts. If our hearts are from him, we begin to tolerate more. And we begin to stand for nothing. Let me give you another area that's affected, and that's our worship. Look with me in verse 13. It says this. While the hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Actually, the better translation is, and their worship of me is a ritual taught by men. Now, he's not talking about rituals or commandments that are like, hey, we put the offering here instead of putting the offering there. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that when we come to a place of worship, that we just fall into this ritualistic mindset, meaning we do this. We sing because we're supposed to. We give because we've been guilted to. We attend because we feel obligated. Now listen, when our worship, listen, when our worship looks like that, that we just come because we think we're obligated, we give, we put in the plate, and we're like, oh, I really don't want to put that in the basket there, but, you know, I feel obligated because people are watching, and we drop it in there, which they shouldn't be. Or we sing because we're supposed to sing. Now listen to me, when we have a mindset like that, we've lost the wonder of God. We've lost the wonder of who God is and what he wants to do in our life. It becomes pomp and circumstance for us instead of the overflow of the passion of our hearts. So when you sit there today and maybe you look at your life and go, I am living a life of mediocrity. Listen to me, you got to go, it affects me. 
It's been affecting my convictions. It's been affecting my worship. It affects me. Which leads us to the most important question, which is the third one. Here it is. And we'll find it in verse 14. What is God's plan to move us beyond mediocrity? Now, I want you to hear me here because what God says is going to blow your mind. You ready? Here it is. Verse 14. Therefore, meaning, dun da 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 I've got a plan. Here it is. Therefore, behold, I will again. Now, pause. Don't read anymore. Don't read anymore. Don't read anymore. Don't cheat. Look at me. If I'm God, and I know I'm not, but if I'm God at this point, here's what I'm thinking. Okay, I've got these people who are brought out of a debt, out of uh, slavery, and I provided man. I, mean, I was like throwing Big Macs from heaven. I mean, they were taken care of, and then they didn't believe me, but yet the next generation, I gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, and I provided for them. I mean, I did all these, I mean, I did all this great stuff for them, and yet they find themselves where they keep honoring me with their mouths but their hearts are so far from me when are these ignorant people going to learn you kind of are you with me on that one so if i'm god i say therefore i will again crush you like the wretched pathetic people you really are that's what i would do right wouldn't you do that but that's not what god does look what he says i love this therefore behold i again i will do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder you know what God's plan to move us to a point of beyond, moving beyond mediocrity? You know what God's plan is to move us to a place where we don't just survive, but we start striving for what he wants for us? You know what God's plan is? Is to astound us with the miraculous. That's his plan. To astound us with the miraculous. Now think about that. I deserve wrath. I deserve discipline. I deserve punishment when I can say the right thing but yet my heart is over here but God says listen here's my plan to bring those things together it's going to be an awesome plan you ready here's this I'm going to blow you away with my miracle work I'm going to astound you with the miraculous that I can do you know I know uh, Audrey and I've been talking about you're due when 18 days and then Brad's been talking about tomorrow's labor day so that'd be a great time to have a baby if you've had kids, here's what you do know. When the baby is born, there's this overwhelming sensation that this is a miracle handing work of God. It takes me back to Psalms 139 where it says, I fearfully and wonderfully made you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. Is that a miracle? You need to believe it. Here's God's plan. Listen, if you're struggling with mediocrity, just, just know this. Here's God's plan for you. Here's God's plan for me. I'm going to blow them away with miracles. Now, why would, I'm a why guy. I'm a why guy. I like to ask the question why. Because why would God choose miracles? Why would God just say, okay, instead of punishing you, instead of bringing another prophet into your life that's going to speak to you, I'm just going to blow you away with miracles. Why would God do that? Because miracles remind us of what God has done. And at this time in history of Israel, they would have had some pretty big miracles they could fall back on. For example, the Red Sea. When Moses goes to the Red Sea, he's got millions of Israelites. And there are a mountain to one side, a mountain to the other. Pharaoh has now changed his mind, an army behind him, and a sea in front of them. And they literally look at Moses, and here's what the people say. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that we had to come all the way out here to die? Like, Moses, are you kidding me? And what did God do? part of the waters, right, to dry ground. And they passed through. And as they passed through, obviously Pharaoh pursued. The waters came and killed them all. I mean, do you think if you were on the other side and you're the last of the Israelites, like the four millionth and 13th person, when you got across and you turned around and you saw that happen, would you have worshiped and celebrated God? 
You better believe it. What about when you're hungry and you're walking and Big Macs are just dropping from heaven because that's how God is providing manna for you? You're like, oh my gosh, I mean, was that a miracle? Some of you are like whoppers, but anyway, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's irrelevant. But at the end of the day, God providing manna from heaven, I mean, was that a miraculous thing? And he didn't do it one time and say, hey, by the way, store it in a thing called fridge. No, he just provided it every day, right? And what about the time when God finally got him into the promised land? If you notice, there was a second time God parted the waters as they crossed the Jordan River. They crossed, and the waters parted, and they passed through, and then they go to the promised land. And then there's this place called Jericho. Now, just think about this. This place called Jericho that's rightly in the middle of the land of Canaan, the promised land that God provided. And you know, militarily, if you're going to win anything, you've got to divide and conquer. And this place was a fortress. Most scholars would say the walls were as much as 40 to 60 feet tall. And here's God's plan. You ready? You already know this, but here's God's plan. Here's what I want you to do, Israel. For six days, just march around the city one time. Don't do anything. Oh, and by the way, on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, when you complete it, I want you to let out a shout and blow a horn. Really, God? I mean, mean, this is a military strategy. Where do swords and spears and like bazookas come in, God? I mean, this is not going to work. And would you love to have been there the day when you passed through the seventh time and the horn blew and Israel let out a shout and you saw the first pebble began to fall off the wall. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there when you saw the walls of Jericho come crumbling down? Wouldn't that have been amazing? Yes. Why miracles? Because it reminds us of God, what God has done. Can I tell you a miracle that was so much better than that? There was this guy named Jesus who died on the cross, and they wrapped him, and they put him in a borrowed grave. He didn't even have his own grave. A borrowed grave. And three days later, he came back to life. Now, I'm just going to tell you something about Doug. If I saw a dead man going to a grave, come back to life, I'm on his team, right? I mean, resur- I'm on, if, if he comes back from the dead, I'm with him. Anybody else with me on that one? I mean, I'm following that guy. That was a miracle. The resurrection of Christ was a miracle. Let me tell you about another miracle. When you said yes to Jesus and you moved from death into life and from darkness into light, that was a miracle that happened. Why does God want to blow us away with miracles? To remind us of what he's done. Let me give you another reason why miracles. Because it reminds us that he's still at work. If the Bible is right, and I'm going to say 100% thousand sure it is. If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is he still a God of miracles? You said a while ago, I think he'll do it again. Do you really think that? I mean, I know that was words out of your mouth, but was your heart going, yes, yes. I not only believe it, I know it. If he's the God of miracles way back six, seven, eight thousand years ago, he's still a God of miracles. Nothing about the nature and the character of God has changed. He is still a miracle worker. Do you believe that today? And one of the reasons I think he said I'm blown with miracles is because to remind us he's still working. Let me give you one more reason. Miracles reveal our greatest need. See, when I read a miracle in Scripture, or hear about a miracle in someone's life, it reminds me that above everything else, I need a touch from my Lord in my life. Amen? Let me just say this. I don't hold grudges, but I can get hurt pretty good. And I'm telling you, when I get to the place, if, if anything ever happens between us, and I say these words, kind of like Fonzie, that have trouble coming out of my mouth, but I'm going to say them, and you're like, I forgive you. Is forgiveness a miracle? Biblical forgiveness, is it a miracle? 
Yes. And if we biblically forgive someone else and cancel their debt, it takes a miracle work of God in our lives to get us to forgiveness. What about restoration? Is that a miracle? You better believe it. Some of you have fractured relationships, and for God to restore them would take a miracle work. Yes. How about physical healing? Is that a miracle? Can we just go on and on and on, couldn't we, right? The point is simply this, is that God said, here's what, your hearts are far from me, but at the end of the day, I'm going to do the miraculous because it reminds you what I've done. It reminds you that I'm still working, but it also reminds you of your greatest need, and that's my touch in your life. Because when God does a miracle in our lives, it transforms our heart. And look what happens. What we then declare and what we believe begin to do this again. Right? Right? So here's my easy question for you today. Are you living a life of mediocrity? And maybe here's maybe a more important question. Are you tired of living a life of mediocrity? Because I know something about everybody in the room. Here it is. God wants our hearts. If you're a follower of Jesus, God wants your heart today. You can sing all the right songs. You can say all the right stuff. You can even walk out the door and go, God bless you, pastor. You can say whatever you want to say. But if our hearts are in left field, it doesn't do any good. God wants your heart this morning. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, listen to me, and you're going to hear me say this all the time, I want to challenge you to say, God, would you take my heart back? Would you recapture my heart today? God, would you in my heart, in my mind, would you take me to a place when you did the miraculous work of my life? Maybe it was allowing me to forgive someone. Maybe it was allowing me to restore a relationship. Or God, maybe I saw the birth of a best friend who gave birth and just reminded me how good and how great you are. I mean, whatever it is, God, would you just recapture my heart today? And I'm going to ask you, as soon as we sing the first note and sing about the cross of Christ, maybe you want to join me at this altar on our knees and say, God, would you take my heart back today? It's been in left field for far too long. And I want my words, I want the words of my mouth and the actions of my heart to be in sync again. Would you pray that today? And if you don't know Christ today, listen to me. You know what God wants from you? Your heart. He wants you to surrender your heart and trust him as the Lord and the Savior of your life. So I'm going to ask you, would you stand with me? Everybody just stand with me. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And I'm going to pray for us today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Nobody looking around. And I'm just going to ask you this. Just in the space and nobody's looking around. So please, everybody head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking. If you're just here today and you say, Doug, I'm struggling with a life of mediocrity. And I'm tired of it. And I don't want to live anymore. Would you just slip your hand up? I'm not going to call you out. I'm just going to be praying for people that feel like that's where they find themselves today. Yeah, amen, amen. You're struggling with it. Amen, amen. Slip them, put them right back down. As soon as we hit that first note, I'm going to ask you to get out of your chairs. If you're struggling, or if you're just fearful of that, or if you're just that person who's following Christ going, I want to make sure today before I leave that I ask God to recapture my heart this week as I go. I'm going to ask you to join me to pray at the altar and ask God to recapture our hearts today. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'm going to be standing right up front, and I would love, love, love to talk to you about what it means for you to give your heart to him. God, we love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for your goodness. I just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you do not want us to live a life of mediocrity, that you do not want us to settle in our journey with you. God, it wrecks our convictions. It wrecks our worship. 
And God, some of us have bought into the lie that if we just say enough right things, that somehow our heart will automatically come in line. And it won't. That's why you tell us that you're going to do the miraculous in our life. That you're going to astound us with who you are and what you've done. And I just pray today for believers that you would recapture our hearts today. That we would walk out here with a new sense of passion and enthusiasm and love for you. That we would go out today and start looking for the miraculous things that you do every day. From providing for us to protecting us to the things that just blow our minds away. God, may we humble ourselves this morning at this altar and ask you to take back our hearts, to recapture us again so that the condition of our hearts and the words of our mouth would be in rhythm today. But God, I pray for those who don't know you, that today would be the day they would give their heart to you. We love you, Lord. I thank you for your goodness. And would you move in this place today? For it's in your precious and holy son's name we pray. Amen.